Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. This is Danny. Join me as we go deep into God's Word, as we discover the hidden gems and hidden treasures that God has made available to us all if we would have but ears to hear and eyes to see. As you come with me on this journey, let's explore God's Word and see what He desires to show and tell us in our day. This may be your first time or the next time, but I welcome you here. Let's dig in and see what the Lord has for us today. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 18. Um, This is actually an additional episode that I wasn't planning on uh, doing as quickly. Um, However, I I just feel it uh, impressed upon. Um, So as I'm sitting here, um, I've I've thought on this text uh, for for a few days. Um, I don't have any notes on it, so I'm just going to uh, trust the Lord um, that uh, He'll guide me on uh, what He's been stirring in my heart for this particular uh, scripture. Uh, so, um, just an introduction. Thank you for joining me again. Um, welcome to those who may be new for the first time or uh, my returning visitors. Thanks for, for joining me. So today's um, discussion is going to come out of Matthew chapter 25, and many of you may be familiar with it. Um, If not, I'm glad I can introduce you to it. It's quite an interesting, it's a parable actually, Matthew 25, starting in verse 1, and Jesus is giving them a parable. Now, a parable is, is essentially a story that demonstrates a lesson, um, the parable commonly is a story that is created or made up. Um, however, I would argue that it doesn't necessarily have to be made up, um, although it is a story that communicates a lesson, that there is a reality, and many times a spiritual reality, that lies within the story. Um, so before I read to you this particular scripture, um, I do just want to place it within its um, scriptural context. Um, this this parable comes right after Jesus um, is um, discussing about concerning the day or hour of his coming. Um, and so he is, this is verse 36 uh, through 51, so the end of that chapter 24, which chapter 24 carries with it a lot of weight. Um, uh, and unfortunately, I believe many times, maybe this will be um, something that I'll do in the future. But um, I believe chapter 24 gets misapplied um, a lot to us in our current day. Um, although I believe that Jesus is speaking of it in terms of their day. So I'll just leave that there. But at the end of 24, Jesus is speaking of the day in which the Son of Man will come. And essentially in this, he is telling them to be faithful, to be wise, to be prepared, to be ready. And because we do not know the hour or time. Now, 
right into that next portion is where we find this parable of the ten virgins. Some translations render it as ten bridesmaids. Um, I would say uh, from what I've seen, the majority of translations render it virgins. Um, as I explored some of the of the why behind this difference in rendering, um, from what I can tell, at least a aspect of this is due to uh, humanity's understanding of what lies beneath the, this idea of ten virgins marrying this groom. Um, those who prefer the the translated word into bridesmaids, um, I believe, do so because of their fear in what it implies Jesus to to be agreeable to, and that's polygamy. Um, I believe this is actually a misapplied worry. Um, I believe that the heart of what Jesus is teaching isn't that it's okay for a man to take ten wives, but rather his illustration of five that were wise and five that were foolish. And then how can we learn from the actions of those wise and foolish? And there so, uh, by doing so, we can grab from this text some spiritual truths, some realities that we can glean from. So uh, less, I believe, in what Jesus is saying, um, uh, rather than approving of polygamy, um, I believe virgins is actually the, the, better, um, the better translation or rendering of, of that word. Um, the word in Greek is um, parthenos. Um, the lexicon says it can be um, defined as a maiden, a virgin, um, extended, uh, sometimes also extended to men who have not known women. Um, and so, um, essentially, and I think most accurately, this describes a woman who has yet to know a man in intimacy. Now, again, I am no Greek scholar, nor am I um, educated in um, out of any kind of uh, Bible school or, or such. Um, so I'll kind of preface my opinions with with that. However, um, it is also the same word that we see where when Mary, the mother of Jesus, is 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 said, um, the prophecy is given. It's you know, virgin will bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. A virgin shall bear a son. That's the same word used in this text, and we render Mary a virgin, not a bridesmaid. Um, so, um, I believe that um, safe to call these virgins, and we are, as I will try to point out down the road as we explore the text, um, why I believe that virgins 
as w- would be the better way um, as it relates to bridal intimacy. Okay. So again, Jesus on the in the backdrop of him telling those hearing to to be prepared, to be watchful. Um, there is a global sense of in this parable in chapter twenty five. There is a global sense of okay, what can I learn from this text? What is it trying to say? And I believe in a general global sense, it is be ready, be prepared, be watchful. Um, however, I do believe there is more that we can glean from this text, um, and um, and so I, I am eager to do so, and believe that there can be benefit in it. Um, Many people have attempted to, and rightly so, and perhaps wrongly so, have attempted to uh, to draw out of the text uh, particular parallels and um, and 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 such. So, whether they are correct or incorrect, um, uh, I don't know, but uh, I am definitely not the only one to approach these uh, scriptures and looking for. Uh, things that we can parallel or glean from. So, without further ado, uh, this is Matthew chapter 25. And as far as I can tell, there is um, this particular parable of the ten virgins doesn't exist in in any of the other Gospels. Um, However, uh, there is a a particular story out of Luke 19.13 and uh, it is describing ten servants who were given ten minas. And this this master said to them, engage in business until I come. So there's a similar, a similar story. Um, however, this particular parable, to, as I understand, uh, doesn't, doesn't show itself in other gospels. So this is a particular unique thing that Matthew uh, gleaned out of the the words of Christ. Um, one thing I want to just interject, and, and I discovered this um, just actually a few days back, and as I began to, to think on it, I think that the Lord shared with me something very unique um, and very special. Um, but if you'll notice, as you read through the Gospels, which, by the way, I am a lover of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if I had to account for the majority of my time, where do I spend most of my time exploring Scripture? It would be in these four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, I find them to be the most... Um, this is not to devalue the other books of the Bible, but I find them to be the most encouraging, the most um, enlightening, the most... Um, searching for words I, I it it fails me but um i believe that if we can get appropriately enamored with jesus who he was what he did what he called us to do what he showed us to do how he demonstrated the kingdom how he spoke of the kingdom of god if we can get fully alive in who he was who he is and who he has called us to be 
all of the the rest of the the instruction literature uh, paul predominantly wrote most of the the new testament they they call him a prolific writer a substantive he 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 wrote the majority of the new testament and majority of his writing it is generalized as instruction um now instruction um correction these things are necessary um i don't rebuke them at all and it is every scripture is god breathed and important um so i value them um i will say that if we can get so fully engrossed in jesus then many of our dysfunctions would actually sort themselves out by being so captivated by Jesus and and replicating his life in our life when we allow we allow the holy spirit to to lead to guide us and direct us we can become so fully alive in Jesus that many of our issues would actually self resolve um and we would discover how much um less correction we would need um by no means do do i believe that we are self functioning self contained within this microcosm of of who we are and who we intend to be this is um we need spiritual authority we need spiritual leadership spiritual fathers and mothers and and one of us to come alongside of each other we need all these things but 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 my heart's passion in pursuit of knowing and discovering god is found throughout the gospels uh, of who jesus is so one of the things that that i began that the lord shared with me is this question does the book of matthew speak more of financial stewardship um of preparation than any other gospel because Matthew was a tax collector and that's the paradigm from which Matthew valued in what Jesus taught. So let me let me give an illustration. Um if let's say as a tax collector um I am I have this accounting background if i'm listening to someone speak and they they begin to to speak the language of my paradigm um i am going to greatly resonate with with what's being said and and if i can if i have eyes to see that i'm going to want to 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 replicate that or or discuss that um in my you know throughout my life now this isn't to say that you know only the, each disciple spoke of what their background was we don't limit um you know god breathed uh word based on what we've encountered and what we've experienced but i do believe that each of us carry a paradigm a lens by which we see the world and oftentimes we communicate what we value and so because each um disciple each um apostle had a paradigm 
we do see throughout some of the gospel writings, there's some subtleties of differences of what is expressed. And so Matthew being a tax collector um, would have a paradigm for the, the, the aspects of, you know, treasure of, you know, things that are spoken of, of money, stewardship, preparation. So if we look at some of those themes, what themes stand out within each gospel message? And do we see some of those themes? Um, you know, I believe it is in Matthew where we hear of the parable, you know, the lost treasure uh, or the buried treasure, the lost coin. Um, and some of these, the the parable of the talents, which we also see in Luke. Um, but if if I, as I skimmed through, I believe that um, more is spoken in Matthew of this financial aspect than any of the other gospels. And I believe what the Lord was whispering to me was that his paradigm, his lens by which he saw was his background as a tax collector. So um, I believe that's kind of an insight that that was... Um, was unique. I've never considered before. I'm thankful that the Lord would share it with me. So we find ourselves in Matthew 25. Jesus is is cautioning those that would hear to be prepared to be to be cautious. And so in verse one, Jesus says, "These are his words." Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins... All those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So, I'm thankful for God's Word. I'm thankful for the opportunity that we can intimately um, participate with it. Um, I'm thankful that His Word can see us and we can see His Word. And I'm thankful that we can participate in the intimate dance that is navigating the word by the spirit um, so let us embark on this journey so the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins now i already said i believe virgins 
um, in in my in my opinion, is the better word to use rather than bridesmaids. The reason that I believe that, outside of other renderings through Scripture, that we choose the word virgins, and how we have an inclination to to be fearful of the affirmation of polygamy. Um, I believe virgins is actually a better word that paints us the better accurate picture that this is speaking of bridal identity. Um, we know John spoke, John the Baptist spoke of being um, a best man or a groomsman, uh, the, the, the helper to the groom. We know John spoke of that. Um, and so there is a reality of the bride and the groom needing assistance, needing helpers. Uh, so I don't refute that idea. Um, although the reason that I believe that virgins in the sense of the bride herself is the best approach at this is we find later in the text as we read the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. There is a very distinct intimacy between these wise women and the bridegroom. There's an intimacy because when they when when those were ready they went in with him to the marriage feast. I believe that if bride bridesmaids was the more accurate rendering it would demonstrate to us that the these wise women would have went in with their bride but there is that is absent and it communicates an intimacy between these women and the bridegroom um i believe in 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 my understanding it solidifies the significance of these ladies being brides to the bridegroom. Let's not get caught up in the number of them, but rather their actions and how the bridegroom, how the groom sees them and and how they rightly act. Let's be more concerned with that, less concerned with the number. So, ten virgins, this communicates bridal identity. Um, I also would add that um, if we look, um, I believe it was My Jewish Learning is the resource that I find this from, um, and it is very helpful to gain Jewish insight into particular cultural relevances. Um, but we do see in this, in this marriage ceremony, um, and then I'll just summarize this kind of briefly, but there's two components to the Jewish bridal uh, ceremony. There was the betrothal. So this was the, the contractual agreement, the, the coming to terms, if you will, of, the bride and the groom. There were um, gifts and uh, dowries that were involved um, in this process, but we see this betrothal. This it is it is a contractual encounter 
an exchange happening that produces a commitment to the groom. Now, this groom, he would depart and there would be a place prepared for the two to consummate their marriage at the appropriate date. When he would return for his betrothed bride, they would then um, have a, there would be a marriage feast, there would be consummation of the relationship by way of intimacy. And, um, and so there's a lot of parallels if you are to um, explore some of the Jewish culture as it relates to the marriage and marriage ceremony. My Jewish learning um, is where I learned uh, some of that. It's a beautiful parallel uh, for what is what God uh, through Christ is doing and done in regards to his bride, the church. So these ten virgins took their lamps. Okay, so pay attention throughout this as to what they all did, what they some did, or maybe what um, they did or didn't do. So they they took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Um, I'm reminded the um, there's scripture that says um, that the the eye is the lamp of the body. Um, so there's an aspect of this that I that I connect to when I read this that speaks of how we connect what we see to the overflow of our heart's desire. Um, so, but they take these lamps and they went to meet the bridegroom. Now, it tells us that five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. The wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So when I began to read this parable, when it began to resonate with me, the question that kind of spurred in my heart was, because um, as we see later on, the wise say, we can't give you our oil because there may not be enough for you and us. As I began to 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 meditate on that on that and what it could mean, um, I've heard you know plenty of times uh, preachings of the oil and anointing and the spirit and you know those are great and and I love those. But I was I was hit with the question: What if oil was actually a was representative of time. Now you may you may think, well, what are you talking about? Some of you may think, ah, yes, I love it. I'll do my best to try to communicate what I mean by that, but the foolish ones took lamps but they did not take any oil. 
the wise took flasks of oil. They have taken with them an investment that will feed their lamp, that will feed the ability to shine light to both help them to see, help them to identify the bridegroom. Because remember, they went to meet him and notice that when he came, it was an hour in which they needed help to see. It was midnight. It's dark. They need a lamp. And not only do they need a lamp, but they need a functioning lamp because they need the light. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps, and as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, that's important to remember. They all became drowsy and slept. There were five foolish and five wise, and they all got drowsy and slept. I'm re reminded in this of, you know, when, when Peter, James, and John, they go with Jesus into the garden, and he says, you know, stay here and pray uh, so that you are, are not overtaken by the enemy. And, and so Jesus goes on further, and he prays, and he comes, and he sees them asleep. And he says, could you not have, could you not have um, prayed a little longer? And so he challenges them three times to, you know, to stay awake, to be vigilant, to pray. And yet they are tired. They are sleepy. And he finds them asleep. This is what we find here with, with the wise and foolish. So it's actually, it's not, it's not a rebuke that they fell asleep because they were drowsy. They still were classified as wise. In, in this parable, Jesus still called them wise, even though they fell asleep, became drowsy, because he was delayed in coming back. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose. All right, so I want to stop you right there. But at the midnight, but at midnight, there was a cry. Then all those virgins rose. So, the virgins were asleep. They all rose, so they were sleeping. Who released the cry? Here is the bridegroom. It's a it's a simple question, and if we read um, with with keen eyes, then we can see some of those subtleties. Um, I don't have an answer as to who would have released the cry, um, but this is very much the role of of a herald. You know, when a when a king or some important figure would go into a uh, into a city, there would be one who would go before him, who would who would proclaim this king or figure is coming. We see this as it relates to John the Baptist, who was to go before Jesus and proclaim and to make high places low and low places high and to make the, sh the way straight. He was a herald, one who would announce. And so here we see there is an announcement. There is a cry that is issued out. Here is the bridegroom. So something to ponder on. Who released the cry? 
Um, and how important is the one who would release the cry? May we all be a, a person eager and willing to release a cry out in the darkness. Here is the bridegroom. May we ever and always be one, be a people who would uh, proclaim the goodness of our King Jesus and we could awaken those by the power of the Holy Spirit, awaken those who are slumbering and, and that they would rise to the occasion. And so we find that here with these virgins, they indeed rose and trimmed their lamps. All of them did this. They all awakened and they all trimmed their lamps. In, in Luke 12.35, it says, You must be ready. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Um, something that I, that I would challenge you to look into is this process of trimming your lamp. Um, there, th that would describe a particular action. I don't have the details um, here in front of me, but I feel that that is significant in, into what does that physically mean, trimming your lamp? What does that look like in terms of the natural? And how can we learn from that spiritually? What application can be drawn from the physical action of trimming your lamp? What does it mean? What does it look like? Verse 8, And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. So back to my kind of original question is, what if this oil is time? Now, you may, you may um, the astute listener, um, would may question, well, wait, how can, you can't buy time. Um, sure, that's a fi we we kind of have a figure of speech for that. You know, you're you're buying time, um, but I would then would actually then challenge that question or, or or difficulty with identifying the oil as time in in the argument that well you can't buy time. Well, if you recall in Revelation three, verse eighteen, Jesus is talking to. Um, the church of Laodicea, and he says, Therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you and to keep you the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Here he is telling them to buy from him something. Now we know there's not an actual exchange with, with tangible money, but he is telling them to buy from him. This is, this does to me speak of a transaction that is occurring, but not with tangible money. So we, we, there is an allowance in this text, I believe, from, from that Revelation text, to justify this idea of buying from him making an exchange, not with physical money, but, but there is an investment that is needed. Jesus said, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. 
Whoever asks receives. Whoever seeks will find. Whoever knocks, it will be open to you. He affirms that there is an exchange available. And if we ask, we'll receive. If we seek it, we'll find it. What is he saying in terms of this exchange? When he tells these, uh, or rather when these wise virgins say, go and buy it, if if time is an accurate reflection of this oil, they are suggesting there is an exchange that you need to make in order to get sufficient light for it to shine out so that you can see. What is required of um, asking and you will f- uh, receive, seeking and you will find? What is the requirement for both of those to occur? Time. Time is a common denominator inside of both of those those promises of asking and getting, seeking and finding. And I cannot stress enough in the course of my personal relationship with Jesus, with the Father, and with the Spirit, no substitution can be made for the investment of time. You will, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You make time for what you value most. And how you spend your time reflects what is most important in your life. Take an assessment. Uh, Paul counsels us to, uh, Paul or Peter, one um, actually affirms to us challenges us that we are to take an inventory of our spiritual life. And so I challenge you in that in that revelation of the necessity for time that would keep the lamp of your soul and heart burning. Assess where you invest your time. When Jesus challenged those in the church of Laodicea, to buy from him. He says, you think you're rich, but you're poor. But buy from me gold refined in fire or by fire so that you may be rich. This is is not just any gold. This is, and we know that fire purifies the gold. It burns off that in which makes it impure or imperfect. So, um, take an assessment of your life. Where are you? Where do you spend your time? Because in where you spend your time is a reflection of what your highest, most valued place in your life. So. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. Well, before I go to that next part, there is another thing that I do want to say. When we find these wise virgins saying to the other ones, we don't, there, there is not enough for us and for you. I can't. The time that I spend 
does benefit those around me. It does influence that which is around me. But the time that I invest cannot serve as a replacement for the time that's required for you personally. My oil cannot be your oil. My oil can influence your life. You can, um, you can glean from it, but my oil cannot be your oil. We each have a responsibility to invest into the kingdom of God. Not in terms of what we can do for the kingdom, but in terms of our own intimacy and our own proximity and nearness to God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. We have a, a responsibility to have our own supply of oil. I believe that's what I wanted to add there. Now, it's important to realize that while these foolish virgins were going to purchase or to make an exchange, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And, and it tells us that the door was shut. So while the foolish were out trying to, to make the necessary exchange to have a sufficient level of oil for them to be able to see, they actually missed out on the opportunity to enter into. There was a window of time in which there was an availability but because they were not prepared, the opportunity was shut, the door was passed up, and they missed their window. Now, some t span of time elapsed, and when they came, afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open, open to us, let us in. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now, this, is, this should be very reminiscent of Matthew 7, 22. Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then, verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This echoes to me the validity of viewing this oil through a lens of time because it takes time to, to know someone. If, if I do not spend time with my wife, then I will lack the ability to know her. If you are in a relationship with someone, if you do not invest time in knowing them, you will not know them. They come back, but Jesus actually says, 
well, or rather, this in this parable, the groom, which we would know to be Jesus, he says, I do not know you. I can't help but recall in John 17, where Jesus is praying and he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you. It's, it always goes back to intimacy. There's no substitution for knowing knowing in intimacy, knowing in relationship, and those things take time. Now, we can be reborn by the Spirit of God and brought into the, into the Spirit by, in life. When we are apart from Jesus, when we refuse His leadership, and we are disconnected from him and the Father, we are dead. We are spiritually dead walking in this life. But in the Spirit, when we are born from above or born again, we are brought into life. It is though we are Nicodemus had this the same struggle with this concept of how can a how can a old man be born again? Does he crawl back into his mother's womb? And it's as though Jesus is saying, "You're missing what I'm saying." You know the the gospel, the good news to to a to a Jewish person in this time would have been heresy. The good news to a Greek or Gentile would have been foolishness, but to those who have been awakened by the Spirit, it is life and life abundantly. And so eternal life, when we are reborn into, into God by the Spirit of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, by by receiving his leadership and submitting our lives to his leadership, believing that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again to, to stand in the gap for our insufficiencies. We can have confidence that we can be born again and that we become children of God into this new life of the Spirit. So many times, especially in American Christianity, we equate saying a prayer with our with our with the ability to now go to heaven when we die. We have so greatly missed the point of it all. Thank God that eternity with God, which is was which is really a better definition of heaven. We have definitions in from the Bible, the you know streets of gold and pearly gates, all these great things, pictures of jas jaspers and rubies and um, rainbows, and you know we have all these incredible pictures that even Paul he saw by the by the by way of spirit that he wasn't able to speak of. We have all these amazing things, but in reality, 
Heaven is where God is. That's not to say there's there's not this place of, of dwelling, that it's just some arbitrary place. You know, God is all places, so that means heaven is all places. That's not what I'm arguing for, but I'm trying to to challenge the paradigm or this mindset of, okay, I said this prayer, I checked this box, and now I've got my ticket punched so that I can go to heaven when I die. Eternal life. Jesus said these are the words of Jesus. This is eternal life that they may know you. I've I've said this before in in things that I've preached, but this whatever heaven looks like, if if Jesus isn't there, if the Father isn't there, if they aren't there, I don't want it. It's about being near to the Father, being near to the Son being near to Holy Spirit. Eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing the Son. And so in this life that we live, filled even at times with despair, with tragedy, with brokenness, with emptiness, with with hopelessness, we can experience inside of that reality, inside of the the life-changing experience, we can experience heaven by way of the Spirit through intimacy with the Father and the Son. So I would just, I would say that uh, as I close this out, It is important to realize that there is no substitution for time. When a picture is taken and it's developed, you you place this you place this particular you know special kind of paper you you place this after this image has been taken, light has flashed onto it. And it then has to get developed in this dark room with a special lighting. But time is required to develop that to develop that photo and also exposure, the right amount of light. And as time and exposure is introduced, the image is revealed. I heard um, this preacher. His name's Eric Gilmore, and uh, he's a recent uh, development in my, you know, personal watch history. Um, I do. I am really loving some of his material. Um, he has a heart for the presence of God, and and so he uh, he spoke regarding this this issue of perfect and finished and i believe it's deeply profound and it it's it's a potter may be turning clay on a wheel and there's particular stages in which the pottery makes its way to a finished product but each stage is actually there is and each stage can be perfect 
for the stage in which it's in. Now, you would look at it and you would think, well, that's just a, a hunk of clay. But the potter looks at it and says, this is perfect. This is perfect for the stage in which it is at. But it is not finished. And I believe that that really echoes how we are in our Christian life. We are in his eyes as he is making us perfect. However, we're not finished. There's still things in us that have to be shaped, have to be shifted, have to be molded, corrected, and, you know, re-caressed. And, um, and, and so we're not finished, but we are perfect. Um, that doesn't mean that we are without sin. I'm not making this claim. John cleared that up. You know, he says without sin uh, is a liar. So we're not saying you're 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 sinless in in terms of do we do wrong, but he sees us as we submit our lives, the clay of our lives, to the Potter's hands. He can shape us, and as each stage develops. He's saying to us, you're perfect. You're perfect. Keep submitting yourself to me as I am in the process of finishing you. In the process of shaping you, your life, your situation, we must submit our hearts to the process of finishing and perfecting. And when we come into the place of understanding our identity as the bride, as the one who is betrothed to Jesus, we can in expectation look forward to his coming as he then would consummate the, the, the ceremony to each of us. Um, so I challenge you, assess your life, assess how it is you spend your time because there is no substitute for the oil of time that we can develop relationship and proximity to the nearness of the heart of God as we submit our lives to him day by day, walking by and in and through the spirit of God. He is shaping us more perfectly into the image of the Son. So I thank you for taking the time um, that this was an investment in, <laughs> and I hope that it speaks to you, ministers to you, strengthens your heart, your desire for him, to know him more, to seek him in his word, uh, and, and see what he would speak and share to you. Um, so I bless you, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining me. I hope this blessed your heart and you leave with something special. Let us press in to know him more. Let us press in to know him more. And he will find us in seeking and seek us in finding. God bless you.